The following KOPN podcast is made possible by the generous donations of listeners like you. Please consider a donation to listener-supported community radio, KOPN. You can donate securely on our website at kopn.org. Hi, welcome to Food Sleuth Radio, where we help you think beyond your plate. I'm Melinda Hemmelgarn, a registered dietitian and investigative nutritionist, and I'm on a mission to connect the dots between food, health, and agriculture and find food truth. It is absolutely an honor and a privilege to interview Dr. Tyrone Hayes, who is a biologist in the Department of Integrative Biology at the University of California in Berkeley. He has multiple appointments, and he's probably best known for his groundbreaking research on frogs and atrazine, the herbicide. So welcome, Dr. Hayes. It's good to be here. I guess I want to start out by asking you how you went from South Carolina as a young man, as as a child, growing up, playing in the outdoors, how you moved from your experiences there to the work that you're doing today looking at atrazine and frogs. Well, it's a long, curvy road, actually, and not one that I, certainly not one that I would have predicted when I was back in South Carolina playing with frogs. Um, As you said, I grew up in South Carolina. I grew up in an area where I was very close to nature. There were frogs and snakes and birds and raccoons and you name it all around our house. And I was, as a child, very interested and excited about biology and understanding the environment and understanding animals. And and with that interest, I did well enough in school that I got accepted to Harvard University. And I I guess there I began my more formal education in biology and understanding the environment. And towards the end of my uh, work at Harvard, I ended up applying to graduate school at Berkeley. And I came here to get my doctorate in endocrinology, the study of hormones, and with a focus on amphibians and how the environment affects hormones and growth and development. And just as I finished my PhD, I became a professor and became interested in chemical contaminants in the environment that interfere with hormones that can have adverse or negative effects on development and growth. And about that time, when I started to become known in in the field for my interest in this area, I was contracted by the company that was in Novartis to manufacture atrazine, who introduced me to atrazine and asked me to start studying the effects of atrazine on amphibians. Hmm. It's almost as if maybe they suspected there might be a problem, do you think? Well, you know, I get that question a lot. It's not clear what their motivation was. Um, I don't know if their motivation was, and this is my speculation, to sort of have control, if you will, over the data and information that was available, you know, that they paid for it and they contracted academic scientists. And on some level, they had control over the information and the science. Um, I learned after the fact that there was some indication from their own scientists and actually from a scientist that trained one of their vice presidents, that there was an indication that atrazine was an endocrine disruptor. So they had some idea at the time that they hired me that there were some concerns, including concerns about reproductive hormonally dependent cancers. So you then reaffirmed their initial questioning and concerns. And then what happened? It sounds from your website that they weren't real happy about your findings and they wanted to prevent you from speaking. Well, it's funny. I, you know, I was very naive. In fact, I remember I was interviewed by um, Frontline, the, the, the television news show, prior to all, to all of this coming out. And they asked a very similar question, like, well, 
what if a company hired you and you found something? And my naive response was, I would think the company would be happy that if they found out that, that, a, that a product that they had was causing negative effects in the environment on human health, you know, my response is, I think they would be happy to, to know so that they could pull back their chemicals, study it further, and, and use that information to protect environmental health and public health. And that's really how I entered the contract with Novartis. I mean, I really thought they'd be happy to know that I'd done really careful science and figured out that there might be a problem. And I, that, that wasn't the response, actually. So we identified some problems that indicated that frogs were demasculinized and feminized by atrazine, and we then immediately, because I was under a contract at the time with confidentiality clauses, they immediately went into you know, sort of the mode of, well, how do we fix this or, you know, how do we spin this is really what they went into. How do we present the data so that it doesn't look so badly? And and that just wasn't what I was interested in doing, and I eventually ended up leaving the contract. Mm. You know, it's interesting. It, it sounds like you had the support of your university while you were doing this research. Well, yes and no. <laughs> I mean, I learned a lot about the university as well. And I think the university has a, you know, there's a lot of discussion about academic freedom and, and all these kinds of things. But, but ultimately, also, the university wants to protect themselves from liability. And, you know, so at this point in my career, I feel like if it really came down to it and, and there was something that I did and there was an issue of whether or not they would be sued by some big company, I, I'm not sure what would happen to me, to be honest. <laughs> right. It's it's very difficult. These are difficult times. Well, let's let's go back and talk about atrazine. Let's talk about what it is, what it does, and what are our main concerns about it. Mm-hmm. Um, in terms of its agricultural use, atrazine is a is an herbicide, so it's a weed killer. Um, in this country, it's primarily used on corn, but sorghum and sugarcane. And, and, and there are some other uses, some uses in forestry. And it is used in agriculture to kill weeds because it essentially blocks photosynthesis. But plants like corn, for example, have a natural resistance, if you will. So you can apply it to corn. It doesn't harm the corn, but it kills the weeds that might compete with the corn. What it does on so-called non-target organisms is very different. Uh, there are a number of different mechanisms that have been identified. In fact, we're working on a major paper right now that really looks at all the different mechanisms of atrazine. But the focus has been atrazine's ability to decrease androgens, like testosterone, the so-called male hormone, and to increase estrogens, the so-called female hormones. And and the consequence of that are, of, of those types of mechanisms, are that it decreases male reproductive function. So, for example, in fish, in frogs, in rodents, and probably even in humans, it decreases sperm count. So that's a concern. And the feminizing effects are manifested, are evident in in many different ways. In fish, it can cause males to grow eggs in their testes. In frogs, it can cause male frogs to grow eggs in their testes. In mammals, it wouldn't cause those types of effects, but it is associated with things like breast cancer or mammary cancer in rodents. It's associated in some studies with increased breast cancer incidence in humans because breast cancer is estrogen-dependent. So when you have a molecule like atrazine that's increasing the production of estrogen, that's a very negative thing to have happen in a woman, for example, who might be entering an age where she might experience or be at increased risk of breast cancer. 
Oh, and, you know, we hear so much about endocrine disruptors being a classification of a certain pesticide or herbicide. And it's really interesting to understand what that really means. So endocrine disruptors then mess with our, our hormonal systems and they can influence levels of testosterone and or estrogen, if I'm understanding you correctly. In the case of atrazine, yes. Um, what a lot of people think of when they think of endocrine disruptors are estrogen mimics, mm. so things that look like an estrogen. But in fact, an endocrine disruptor can do anything from increase hormone production, so, so that would cause you to be off balance, if you will. They can do, they can mimic hormones, as I said. They can antagonize or block hormones. They can prevent hormones from being broken down, so that effectively you have higher hormone levels when you shouldn't. What I found so interesting from your research is that the it's that dose does not necessarily equal the poison example. So where we used to think a higher dose had a worse effect than a lower dose, what your research found is that actually very low doses, and in fact lower than the Environmental Protection Agency limits, are causing damage. Many scientists, not just me and not just Rantrazine are finding these kinds of effects. And the problem with that is, actually there are several, but the main problem is that if you look at things like classic toxicity, in other words, does a chemical kill you? And the answer for Rantrazine is no. You can eat Rantrazine all day and, and you won't die at the end of the day. And, and so there's an assumption that if you don't die from it, then it's safe. Well, it turns out, though, that there's something called chronic exposure. So if you're exposed to much lower levels over a longer period of time, you won't die from acute toxicity, but you might, for example, develop breast cancer or prostate cancer in the case of atrazine. And then there are other more subtle effects of endocrine disruptors that can occur at even lower levels, where, again, you're not going to die at the end of the day. You're not going to die a slow, slow death as a result of direct exposure to the compound, but it will cause hormonal changes that might, for example, lower your lifetime fertility or increase the likelihood that you'll develop breast cancer or decrease the age at which you'll develop breast cancer. Mm -hmm. And those are the things that, you know, that are more difficult to study because you need long-term exposures over the lifetime of an organism to try to understand its effects. Right. And, you know, if you go to Syngenta's website or if you go to some of the agricultural broadcasting services, I'm speaking in particular about the Brownfield News Service, which is where a lot of farmers get their news. And it's very unfortunate because, as you mentioned earlier, the spin that's put on this chemical is one that, well, now, now, the EPA is keeping us safe and we're not exceeding these limits that have been set. How do you, how do you address that difference in the media? Well, I mean, I think that's good. I have confidence, at least I think, that the the EPA under the new administration is going to give us some better information and better guidance. The previous EPA's evaluation of atrazine was very strongly influenced by the industry. Uh, You may know that the Natural Resources Defense Council sued and gained information that showed that the EPA had a lot of closed-door private meetings with Syngenta and interested parties when they made their decisions about atrazine. I can't speak in great detail about it now, but you're going to find that some members of the EPA scientific advisory panel disagreed with the decision that the EPA made and and actually 
you will also find out fairly soon that some members of the EPA's scientific advisory panel who evaluated atrazine within days of making that decision ended up on the manufacturer's payroll. So the EPA's decision was not independent of the financial interests associated with atrazine of the manufacturer's interests. And that was just a flaw in the system. I believe now, under the new, under the Obama administration, that the EPA has already announced and has already initiated a new evaluation of atrazine. And I think that evaluation is going to really look at things in a more objective and fair manner without much of the influence that we saw from the manufacturer. The other problem is that the EPA at the time, and maybe even now, doesn't have in place the methodology or the regulatory practices to evaluate and to regulate endocrine disruptors. Mm-hmm. So the science has not quite yet been adapted in a way by the, the regulators in a, in a way that will protect human health and environmental health. That's very interesting. And I think the other piece of this is that even when pesticides or herbicides are evaluated carefully, they're evaluated singly as opposed to, well, how might atrazine interact then with mercury in our environment? Yes. There are some studies, for example, that shows several, actually, in amphibians and in other animals, that atrazine and fertilizer combine to to make things like nitrosoatrazine that are even more damaging than either compound alone. And several studies have shown that in frogs. There's several studies looking at cancer that shows those kinds of things. And now when you start to mix that in with other pesticides, which may either interact with or synergize with atrazine on a, via a single mechanism, then you have to consider what all the other pesticides are doing individually on other organs and via other mechanisms in combination with atrazine. Hmm. And the analogy I always use is, you know, if you go to the doctor and he or she gives you a prescription, they always check to see what other medications you're taking to see if they're contraindications and this kind of thing. Whereas nobody does that for pesticides, but what comes to your faucet, that mixture is completely unregulated. One itself might not be so bad, but now you've got 10, 20, who knows if you're living in Nebraska, who knows how many compounds that these, quote, low doses might be coming across in your drinking water. Or if you're an organism living in runoff or, you know, living in the environment or even just being exposed to rainwater, who knows how many mixtures of or how many individual pesticides in that mixture are coming across that you're being exposed to. If you're just joining us, we're speaking with Dr. Tyrone Hayes, who is with the Department of Integrative Biology at the University of California in Berkeley, and he is famous for his groundbreaking research looking at the effect of atrazine specifically on amphibians. You know, before we did this interview, I also did some research. Because I'm a dietitian, most of the literature that I've been swimming in in the last, oh, 30 years has revolved around obesity. And I think it's very interesting that there's also been some data looking at the exposure to atrazine uh, in combination with high-fat diets. Um, a, good, a great example of that would be fast food. And, um, and the greater incidence of obesity to an, for animals who had been exposed to the atrazine. I wonder if you could comment on that at all. That's not a particular area of expertise for, for me. But I know there's, there is a big interest now in chemicals, so-called obesogens, that might contribute to the increasing obesity ep- epidemic that we're experiencing in the United States right now. And some of those chemicals directly interact with fat cells that would manipulate their number and survivorship and the ability to metabolize and store fats. 
In other cases, these endocrine disruptors are interacting with hormones that then in turn regulate metabolism and energy storage and how you store fat. And atrazine would certainly fit into one of those chemicals that acts as an endocrine disruptor um, that might contribute to hormonal changes that then help determine whether or not you're going to be obese or how you might metabolize food uh, that you're taking in. Right, and I believe Paul Winchester in Indiana looked at uh, birth defects. And if children were conceived during times of the year, I believe it was June, when atrazine levels were highest in the drinking water, moms were more likely to deliver children that had birth defects. So there are so many issues that are in this soup, this toxic soup of compounds that we're looking at. But I I really like your analogy of when you're prescribed a drug, the doctor asks, well, what else are you taking? And we don't, you know, these compounds don't glow in the dark and they don't make our water turn a funny color. And so for those of us who live in the Midwest, especially, that's where most of us are going to be exposed to the highest amounts because of our agriculture, we have no way of knowing, do we? No, no. I mean, in some cases, um, I get asked this all the time, there are areas where certain government agencies will monitor your water if you ask for free. In other cases, you have to pay. And in some cases, um, you have to pay an outrageous amount that, you know, the average person, and in fact, the people who are more likely exposed can't afford to pay because, you know, people who live in low income, low economic areas are more likely to live in areas and work in areas where they're going to be exposed. They can't afford necessarily to have their water screened. They can't afford necessarily to have a filter put on their water to remove those compounds, even if they knew it was there. And if you're occupationally exposed, there's no removing. Um, You know, there's studies showing that farm workers in California, for example, have atrazine levels in their urine that are 24,000 times what we know to be biologically effective. And that exposure is across the skin, through inhalation, you know, so no water filter will help the people who are most likely exposed to many of the chemicals we're talking about. Well, I really appreciate the fact that you mentioned on your website the issue of environmental and social justice with regard to these compounds. You know, my husband and I recently purchased a water filter, and it was very much with the understanding that we felt unjustly privileged in that we could go out and buy a water filter. But everyone deserves access, I think, to safe and clean drinking water and air. Now, the European Union has banned atrazine. I wonder, with the new EPA administrator and research like yours, are we moving in that direction? I I think we're moving in a direction that's going to be more protective of environmental health and public health. I can only be, you know, it's like the economy. I can only be hopeful it can't get worse. (laughs) So I I can only imagine that we're moving in a more, you know, with the, for for example, another analogy is with this unfortunate and disastrous oil situation we have now, I can only imagine and hope that we're going to move in a more positive direction that's going to be more protective of the environment and of human health. Because we've simply, with regards to the economy, with regards to pesticides and environment, we've simply reached rock bottom, and we can't do anything more than move forward in a positive direction that's going to be more protective of environmental health and public health. You know, one of the arguments, Dr. Hayes, that we're given so frequently is that, well, you know, if we're going to feed the nation 
at a reasonable cost. And if we're going to feed the world, uh, which is something that American farmers have been told is, is their job, if we're going to do all those things, then how, how can we do it without these kinds of chemicals? Well, you know, that, that's in a way one of my more favorite arguments because it answers itself. We aren't. Growing corn has nothing to do, or very little, if anything, to do with feeding the world. We eat less than 2% of the corn we grow. Okay, So we live in a world where 20% of the world dies of starvation because they don't have access to staples. And so this concept, which you'll see on the on some of the websites, more per acre means more for nature, is it, completely bogus. We're eating less than 2% of the corn that we grow. The majority of the corn that we grow is not go, going to providing grains and staples to feeding the world. It's going to ethanol. It's going to economic benefits, uh, such as the plastics replacements that we're making out of corn, such as, um, you know, other, other economic interests. So this is not about feeding the world. It's really about making money and, and building, an, you know. So it's, it's, it's one of these questions that sort of really answers itself in that sense. And does atrazine really significantly increase yield so much more so that it would be, you know, it's, everything's a cost-benefit. Is Are we having such great increases in yield that we can afford this terrible cost? Well, you know, some estimates suggest that atrazine only increases corn yield by 1.2%. Mm-hmm. There are other studies that suggest that atrazine increases corn yield by very little at all. One of the other arguments, though, is that what it does is it allows for more conservative tillage so you don't lose as much topsoil, and in the long run, you're actually saving financially and actually preserving the environment in that way. Right. In fact, that's one of the arguments that was brought up on the Brownfield News Service. They had Mm -hmm. farmers writing in and saying, well, you know, I can do no-till farming thanks to atrazine. How might we respond to that? Um, that's a, that, that's an interesting argument, and it's certainly one that if it were validated, I would add as a positive for atrazine, but my understanding is in many areas, you can do no-till farming, but I don't think that's the standard practice. Mm-hmm. And, and, and if that were the case, then, then that'd be a valid argument, but I don't know of any data that suggests that that is the practice. It sounds to me like we've been sold a bill of goods. I would probably agree with that. <laughs> Dr. Hayes, I want to make sure that I give you an opportunity to share with our listeners anything in particular that you feel you want our listeners to know. Well, I mean, I'm just very happy that that people in general are becoming informed, and I would be satisfied if individuals were completely informed of both sides of the issue and and then made decisions, because as you said, it's a cost-benefit analysis. And if the analysis is that the benefits of atrazine, in terms of the economic benefits, in terms of the potential increased productivity, in terms of the decreased erosion, outweighed the risk, my risk of getting prostate cancer, my daughter and my wife's risk of getting breast cancer, the risk of losing wildlife to endocrine disruption that disrupted reproduction, that increased um, adverse uh, hormonal effects on wildlife. If we decided that that balance supported atrazine, well, then that's our decision. Mm-hmm. Um, and but what I really want to see is people informed and not being given one-sided arguments for 
like, for example, in the case of atrazine, for the benefits without really understanding the risk. So, for example, the company has repeatedly denied that the science shows that atrazine is an endocrine disruptor, and that's simply not true if you look through the literature. Mm-hmm. So give people a fair, you know, show people what the literature really says, what the negative, what the costs really are, and, and then we can make a decision and move forward. You have a fantastic website, and I want to make sure that our listeners know about it. And maybe you can just tell me in the last couple of minutes how you chose it. It's www.atrazinelovers.com. <laughs> it was a funny story. There's a, a U.S. congressperson, Keith Ellison, in fact, who Keith Ellison on Earth Day uh, presented another bill to ban atrazine in the United States. And I was listening to him speak once. He was uh, originally a Congress person in, and state person in Minnesota before he moved to U.S. Congress. And he made a statement once, something like, why spend so much time around something you hate? And I thought, yeah, I spent so much time with atrazine, <laughs> lovers.com. And then there's that old adage, if you love something, let it go. And my hope is that we all come to love atrazine so much that we'll let it go. That's a wonderful story. (laughs) That's wonderful. Dr. Hayes, if I may ask you one final question. If you were to leave our listeners with a charge, how can we make a difference? You You mentioned that we want everyone to be informed. We don't want people not to have a choice in their lives and in these matters. What can we do? Well, I mean, as I suggest on my website, I think there's several things to do. Once you are informed on both sides of the issues, you understand the costs, you understand the benefits, and you and you make a decision about what you want to be exposed to with regard to atrazine. Write to the EPA and express your opinion. Write to U.S. Congress, your local Congressperson, Keith Ellison, for example, in U.S. Congress has already dropped a bill and is trying to get this thing banned, atrazine in the U.S. the same way that the European Union did. You can write to Congressman Ellison and support the bill, and you can write to Syngenta and let them know that this is not something that we want to be exposed to, and those letters will make a difference. There's also links to my website and to others for petitions you can sign that are going directly to Lisa Jackson of the EPA, and I'll make sure those are posted on my website. There's several online petitions that at this point have, I believe, thousands of signatures headed to the EPA to try to block the use of atrazine in in the U.S. Wonderful. Well, I want to very much thank you for your research and your time. If you're just joining us or if you're wondering who I've been speaking with, we've been speaking with Dr. Tyrone Hayes, who is with the Department of Integrative Biology at the University of California in Berkeley, and he is known for his groundbreaking work looking at the herbicide atrazine and its effects on amphibians, and more importantly, what that translates to with regard to human health, the increased risks of cancer, low sperm counts, uh, and just the detriment of our environment. So with that, Dr. Hayes, thank you so much for being with us. Thank you. It's been my pleasure. I want to thank our listeners for joining us as well. Food Sleuth Radio is produced at KOPN Studios in beautiful downtown Columbia, Missouri. Thank you for listening.